Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, SNC-Lavalin will be standing trial on corruption charges. Does this vindicate Jody Wilson-Raybould? Was she right? And in our global ongoing series on drug trafficking and money laundering in British Columbia, a drug trafficker convicted has been in Canada for decades. Why not deport it? And Michelle Rempel joins us, Conservative Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. What is Andrew Shear's policy on immigration? We find out. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Robert Mueller uh, investigation, of course, uh, going on for an extended period of time. The, the report eventually came out. Uh, then the current Attorney General Barr uh, sort of gave a four-page synopsis of of the 400-plus pages of of the Mueller report. Then, of course, all the speculation started. The, 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 the president immediately took a position on this. No collusion, no whatever. See, nothing to see here. Uh, then all the attention started focusing on Mueller. Well, is this what you meant? Is this what you're saying? Ba 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 ba. So, of course, he has a press conference uh, earlier on today at 11 o'clock and, and basically says it's in the report. I'm going to say what I'm going to say now. And then you get the feeling that's all he really has to say about any of this. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So how is this going over in Washington? Is this one of those situations where it depends which side you ask? It's being interpreted differently? A little bit, but we're hearing more of a uh, kind of growing chorus of voices from the Democratic side and from the, from, uh, from the left side of the aisle, more so than we are from the right. It's been kind of, uh, you know, a tweet from the president, a, pre- a secretary, a press secretary statement put out. But it really is the Democrats that are that are kind of drumming up the uh, the kind of the big, loud uh, growls and sounds uh, after Robert Mueller spoke today, up to and including some Democratic uh, presidential candidates. So this is a big story that we're going to be watching now for the rest of the day to see what comes out of it. So where are... Are we now? What did Robert Mueller say today that could add any clarity to what's been going on? Well, Robert Mueller, I mean, as we all know, he's been very quiet for the last two years. He hasn't really made any kind of statements or comments. So this was kind of the the, the parting words as he locked the door and walked out of the Department of Justice to become a regular citizen again. Uh, what we learned was basically what's inside the report. We just actually heard the tone of the person who actually put this report together. He started off by saying, look, I was, I was brought in here to look into Russian interference, and there was a spate of interference in 2016. There's kind of no doubt about it. All the evidence is laid on the table. That did happen. But then he went into the second part of the uh, of the report, which dealt with the kind of obstruction uh, uh, accusations that were kind of in and around President Trump. And he he kind of laid out what he had already said by lo- saying, you know, look, there was plenty of evidence out there about obstruction. But because of a rule inside the Department of Justice that you cannot charge a sitting president with a crime, my hands were tied and I wasn't able to do that. It was one thing to be able to read that in a document, but to actually hear the special counsel say I was unable to charge the president because of a rule that's in place. All right. Let's really break, struck a chord. Let's break that down, Reggie, because many people have a hard time understanding, thinking that, you know, a president is a president above the law. If the president uh, does something wrong, can he not be charged? But from what I understand, what Mueller's saying here is this isn't the venue to do it. I can't charge him under the law. But Congress, the rest is up to you. 
Absolutely. That's what this, this, this kind of rule inside the Office of Legal Counsel says, is that a person who's elected president is duly elected by the people of the United States, and it shouldn't be up to the criminal justice system to take the president out of their position of effectively governing and leading the country. That's what these rules are. They're not constitutional, despite what Robert Mueller said. The Supreme Court has never uh, taken this kind of under consideration. It's just longstanding policy. Uh, but he did make the point of saying, look, this is something that should be punted to the hands of Congress. These are the people that are elected by Americans to put in office to provide a check and balance on the president. So he's now left the door open for Congress to basically start that conversation that the far left side of the Democratic Party has been kind of singing for the last couple of months by saying maybe it's time to open up an impeachment inquiry or potential impeachment hearing into the president inside the House of Representatives. And we're now actually hearing from Democratic uh, presidential candidate Cory Booker, from Kamala Harris, from uh, candidate Seth Moulton, all of them saying today it's time to start impeachment hearings. All right. So, again, just to drill down and clarify on what Mueller could and couldn't do. Uh, So he knew going into this, no matter what he had found, he could not charge the president because that's not his job. That is the job of Congress. That's the job if they want to take it the next step. So he would have known going into this, even with whatever I find, I, I can't indict him. I can't charge him. It's, yes, absolutely. It's the same thing that happened with Ken Starr when he was special counsel with Bill Clinton. He never said, we have to impeach the president. He put this forward. It was up to Congress. Congress then decided to go forward and start the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton. Same with uh, with Robert Mueller. He knew he had no hands to be, actually, uh, to be able to tie a knot into impeaching the president and going after him and charging him. So he left it to the people who provide that check and balance on the White House. Okay, so uh, what would... Uh, man, uh, so... Uh... The president's response, let's start with that. The president's tweet, his response to this. Well, the president has basically wrapped it up in a very kind of neat little bow by saying, you know, nothing else to see here, no collusion, no obstruction. Uh, Robert Mueller said that there was no evidence, or rather that there was insufficient evidence, and we should move on. The problem is, is that's really bad selective quoting on the president's part, because it was William Barr who said that there was insufficient evidence. Robert Mueller very clearly said there was mounting evidence against the president. All right, and once again... uh Talk about uh, about that evidence and obstruction of justice and, and, and clarify what Mueller was trying to in the sense that whether there was uh, there, there was this sort of interference or not. Well, so basically what Robert Mueller was saying is that, you know, during the conversations that I had with people that were linked to President Trump and then candidate Trump, as these investigations were going forth, as he was trying to look into Russian interference, the president was getting in the way via tweets. The president was getting in the way via potentially trying to intimidate witnesses. The president was getting in the way of him being able to fulfill this this investigation that he was put in place for to look into Russian interference. And he says that there was growing evidence to show that the president was, in fact, obstructing justice, but he wasn't able to make any kind of uh, conclusion on that based on those rules of finding a president uh, in kind of a, right. a guilty situation. Uh, but what the uh, what the attorney general had said when he put that conclusion out was, is that, you know, we had a discussion and there was no evidence. He took it upon himself to say that there was insufficient evidence. And that's where the president is simply looking now. So, will what the president is saying, and I'm, and I guess what the White House will will echo, and what what he said in a tweet, will that sell with the American people? Can the person that's being accused stand up and say, "Okay, nothing more to see here"? 
Well, I mean, he's going to try it, and it's probably going to resonate with that kind of 38 to 42 percent of the American population that has followed President Trump through every tribulation that he's kind of come up against since he de- uh, declared his candidacy a number of years ago. That isn't going anywhere. The thing that's going on now is there appears to be just a very small ripple that's appearing inside the Republican Party. We've already had uh, a representative from Michigan, a Republican representative, come out and say perhaps what the president did were impeachable offenses, and these are things that need to be looked at. Justin Mosh held a uh, kind of a town hall last night to tell his constituents that's how he feels, hoping that it resonates with them. Uh, What he also said is that there are numerous people inside the Republican Party that have those same feelings and concerns. They just fear what the president could do to their political futures, which is why they're not coming forward. So while the Democrats are loud and clear how they feel about what the president has done, there is an inkling that there could be a little bit of a movement inside the Republican Party that could potentially spell some trouble for the president going forward. So is this basically Mueller lobbing the ball uh, into Congress's court and saying, okay, the rest is up to you? Well, basically, yes. He came out. He said, you know, now that I'm leaving the office, I'm going back to being a private citizen. This is going to be my final word. If I do have to go and testify before Congress, which I don't want to do, which he potentially could do if he was subpoenaed, uh, he said all I would do is basically read out these 400 plus pages of my report because I have nothing else to add. But that's when he basically said this is now going to be left to the people who have been elected and we'll see what happens. We've already heard from the House Judiciary Chair, uh, 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 Jerry Nadler, who's set to hold the news conference about an hour from now, basically saying, look, it falls to Congress to respond to the crimes that were committed by the president. And, you know, whatever we need to do, quote, we will do so. So this is something that, you know, this little this little kind of flame that's being picked up in the House right now is really going to turn into a raging fire when the Democrats take full control of this. Is this too deep into the weeds for the average American? Well, it, it, it's, it very well sounds like it could be. I mean, to the average Canadian listening to this, it's kind of an overload of American politics yeah. and kind of an overload as to, you know, how the minute things work inside Washington. But Americans have been living through this now for the last four years since even before the president was elected. So this is something that's kind of been saturated into people's brains. They've made up their minds. They have their opinions. They're able to carry on conversations about it. Whether or not they're exhausted is one thing, but people listen to this and people are actually talking about this. So this is something that's not just going to simmer out just because uh, the the uh, office of the special counsel has been closed. So uh, many have questioned whether impeachment's the way to go and whether that benefits the party that's trying to do this. Um, what what would be the how would you compare the impeachment of uh, of Bill Clinton versus that against uh, that for Donald Trump? I mean, how would these cases be similar? How would they be different? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Republicans will sit there, the ones that, that you know, led the impeachment against Bill Clinton and say, well, we had right to do this. This was, you know, a big deal, you know, and so on. The, the, the issues that are facing Donald Trump are very different from the issues that were facing Bill Clinton. Uh, these ones are significantly more criminal in nature. So does that I, carry weight, Reggie? Because, you know, one's, one's sort of a sexual misconduct issue. The other one is, well, it is what it is, right? Yeah, but that's where Republicans are going to try to fight back by saying, look, there was no evidence of collusion or obstruction. They're just echoing the words of the president. So if the president says, I did nothing wrong, Republicans are just towing the line by saying, we don't need to go along with this. The problem is the majority in the House is Democratic, and this is going to be a big push if they decide to impeach. You are going to hear this word carried through the election campaign. All right. They're going to sell. uh, There was no obstruction. There was no collusion. Mueller said there wasn't. It wasn't a case that Mueller saying that statement is not necessarily correct. It's a case. 
it's a case of I can't prosecute you anyway. It's not our job to do that. That's up to to Congress on the no collusion. Uh, can he just keep hammering that? Because that is the one thing that they both agree on. It is. And he will. You know, if he if he decides to drop the obstruction part by saying there was no obstruction, which he probably won't, uh, that would be the the easier thing to do because he can sell there was no uh, collusion with the Russians. It was laid out, you know, plain and clear. It was, you know, put out with evidence that nobody inside the Trump campaign, at least willingly or, you know, with, with any kind of knowledge, knew that they would be colluding with the Russians heading into the 2016 election. So that's where the president really needs to be putting that strong focus on by saying, look, there was this witch hunt going after me, saying that I was colluding with the Russians, saying that Russia and I were, you know, kind of cozy under the sheets with each other, and it was proven to be not true. That's something that he could pick up and he could sell that going on to the campaign trail. What the president is going to do is just lob both of these together and say, look, no collusion, no obstruction, but here's all the tens of millions of dollars of your dollars that were spent trying to go after me, and that's what will stick with the people. So what's next, Reggie? What options do the Democrats have now? What happens with Congress? Well, the Democrats are going to kind of hear uh, that kind of growing chorus of calls for impeachment from the from the far left side, which is now starting to trickle into kind of like the more moderate side of the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, has been uh, kind of staunch in her position by saying, look, we do not need to go after the president with impeachment right now. We need to keep our investigations going. We need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. The problem is, is that heading into an election where Nancy Pelosi is again uh, up for election next year, she is going to have to listen very closely to the people that are inside her party. You know, this kind of new and younger faction of the Democrats that are kind of resonating more with the people across the United States. And we could see a tipping point in the Democratic Party where they do decide to go after the president. Then it's all up in the air to see what happens. Is there an advantage for the Democrats to impeach? We all remember what happened last time. Well, there is a big disadvantage for the president, for the, for the Democrats, rather, to impeach. Yeah. You know, there is an uh, ability for them to potentially gain some ground. The problem is, is they can carry this impeachment all the way th- through, uh, you know, to moving it into the Senate, where it's going to fall flat because Republicans are not going to do anything. So if the Democrats decide to go down the path and say that that's what they're going to do, they will at least be able to kind of carry that into the campaign by saying, look, we were able to carry out investigations and pass legislation and get an impeachment going. The Democrats did this. The Republicans were the obstructionist that stood in the way so do the dems have to do they have to react to this or can they they just can they just let it play out and and just continue to to sell whatever it is they're trying to sell I think that they can, but they won't do that because of these ongoing investigations. You know, with Representative Jerry Nadler saying it's now on our shoulders and it's now on our backs to be able to Mm. kind of pick up the slack from what was left from the special counsel's office and move this forward. I think that this is going to be a conversation that is kind of, you know, going circular over the next couple of months. But you'll see that circle starting to get bigger as either the investigations broaden or we actually start to see inquiries happen. Uh, What will we be talking about in Washington one week from now? Uh, well, we could be talking about uh, any number of things. You know, the, the president is still trying to come off of a high from that Japan trip. You know, we haven't really talked much about that uh, over the last 24 hours because of what's been going on now. Uh, we've got trade issues that are coming up. I mean, there's any one number of things that could be happening in Washington. You kind of throw a coin up in hmm. the air and see where it lands. You say a word and that'll be our next conversation. Wow. Uh, so um, is this it for Mueller, do you think? Or do you think this, again, is going to continue as these investigations uh, unwind? This is just going to be a smoldering tire fire for for Trump. 
Well, Robert Mueller said specifically that this is going to be or this he would like this to be the very last time yeah. that you hear from him. So if he goes into being a private citizen, you know, remember, he no longer will be a part of the Justice Department. He no longer will kind of have the hand of the president and the attorney general over top of him. So if he is subpoenaed, nobody can get in the way of that subpoena to make him go and testify on Congress uh, before Congress, rather. So there is a chance we could hear from him. I don't think we're going to. I think he's just going to kind of slide back into uh, civilian life and kind of, you know, l- live his life going forward, knowing what he's kind of done to the the political wave going across the country right now but it's his lasting words these these documents that he put out and the interviews that he held that are going to really resonate through next year and if donald trump wins again are going to resonate for four years after that as you said reg reggie when you listed off the grocery list of things that are the balls that are in the air on any given day uh with this administration how significant is Mueller speaking in all of this well, it's it's significant only in, because we did not hear from him for two and a half years, with the exception of what his accomplishments were. I mean, we didn't hear his words, but we saw indictments carried out. We saw people go to jail. We saw, you know, uh, investigations start up at the state level in New York and in, in Virginia. These are words that were uh, more powerful than the voice of, of Robert Mueller actually speaking into a microphone. This is kind of sol- solid work over two and a half years that proved that there was some kind of disruption inside political life in Washington, inside the campaign of... Donald Trump. And we're going to continue to hear the kind of uh, um, resonated words of, 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 of uh, Robert Mueller going forward because there are still state level uh, trials that are taking place linked to uh, people like Paul Manafort, linked to people uh, like Michael Cohen that are going to continue over the months and years to come. And these could potentially pose problems for the president when he leaves office. Never dull where you are, Reggie. My goodness. Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News, uh, based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6. As always, Reggie, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating. We talked about this uh, many, many times. And, you know, kudos to uh, Brian Hill and Sam Cooper and uh, the global investigative news team uh, out on the West Coast who have been giving us uh, just incredible reports over the last uh, couple of years, I would guess, uh, in relation to the opioid crisis in 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 British Columbia, which is is of course now across the whole country, uh, certainly not as as bad as, as as it is in BC, but you know that seems to be ground zero for all of this. Uh, they've been instrumental in in breaking these stories and doing investigations that that have actually led to change in the sense that this has brought uh, these stories to light and and they are now being investigated a little bit more deeply than than initially. But we've talked about. Uh, the opioid crisis. We talked about the illegal fentanyl coming in from China. We've talked about how this has affected uh, housing prices in the BC market with the money being laundered uh, through the system. And now another great report uh, done by uh, Brian Hill and Sam Cooper, how Canada's legal system helped an alleged Chinese gangster avoid deportation for decades. Um, This is an incredible story. Uh, about a, a, a guy named Mr. Tam, and here's a guy who between 1991 and 2014 was accused by Canadian law enforcement officials of being a heroin importer, a chemical drug lab operator, and a known loan shark with a history of violence, and he's been able to beat the system and defy the government as long as uh, the government that has long wanted him gone, says the report. Let's bring in Brian Hill, online writer and researcher, investigative reporter for Global News. He's with us now. Brian, thanks for the time much appreciated 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, uh, kudos to you, to you people out there and your team that have that have been digging this stuff up. What's it like? Before we get into the story, what's it like been doing this? What's it like? Uh, because I'm guessing this is your world at this point. Once you get this deep into something. Yeah, I mean, when you're reporting on an issue like this, and I'm particularly focused on immigration, uh, for the past few years I've done extensive reporting on that immigration file, you really get to know and learn the the system, you get to learn and know the players, and then you also learn what you don't know and try and figure those questions out, because every time we do report like this, there are more questions and more things that we ask of ourselves, but that we also wonder whether or not law enforcement and uh, government officials should be asking in terms of how they handle these sorts of cases. And officials have been taking note of this reporting, haven't they? Certainly. When it comes to, to, to the money laundering uh, issue, which uh, Sam Cooper and a number of uh, reporters at Global have been focused on for, you know, like you say, the better part of a year, more two years now, um, it, it, the, the government is taking note. You know, we've got BC now launching a public inquiry into uh, money laundering. Uh, we've got the number of government reports putting the, the total somewhere in the range of uh, $7.5, $8 billion in terms of the amount of money laundered uh, that they believe was laundered through the B.C. economy last year. So so definitely governments are taking note, both federal, uh, provincially and federally. Okay, so this latest story, another spoke in the wheel. Explain this to everyone. So this is the story of a man named uh, Kwok Chung Tam, uh, who came to Canada as a refugee claimant in 1988, uh, was smuggled out of China, according to his own words, uh, fearing that he would be persecuted for his wealth uh, as well as for his political views. Um, but very short, uh, very soon after arriving in, in Vancouver, uh, was under the eye of, of uh, law enforcement, the uh, Vancouver Police Department, their gang squad, as well as the RCMP uh, and, and immigration officials for his, uh, uh, you know, alleged involvement in organized crime and his connections to, to, to uh, the big circle boys in particular, which is one of the uh, more notorious uh, mainland China-based crime groups. So Canadians knew of him when he arrived? Uh, when he first arrived, no. Right. Uh, so, so the day that he landed, he landed in, on December 5th, 1988, and he, he made a claim. Uh, but within a matter of years, he was under investigation, like I say, from multiple levels of law enforcement. Uh, in 1992, he was uh, convicted of theft to under $1,000. But uh, the files that we've obtained from the federal court uh, in this particular case, thousands of pages of them, really go into extensive detail in, in terms of how uh, the, the, the scope under which he was being investigated and the allegations that law enforcement, including the RCMP, the Canada Border Service Agency, Vancouver Police, were making with regard to his alleged links to organized crime and to uh, drug trafficking and, and importation of heroin, etc. So of all of these charges, what happened? Wh- wh- where has this gone? Why has he not been deported? Yeah. So there, there's a number of things. Uh, I think one of the one of the things here, and it's important to note, is that in terms of gang affiliation uh, and in terms of links to organized crime, Mr. Tam uh, to the day continues to deny all of these claims, uh, making sure to note that the, these these uh, claims of and allegations with respect to organized crime have never been proven in court. 
uh, and and uh, that he's never been convicted uh, of any of the organized crime offenses that uh, police allege he's participated in. Uh, what he has, though, been convicted of uh, in 2010, he was convicted for a role, his role in a marijuana grow operation that stemmed from a, a, a police raid on his home a few years earlier in which uh, police alleged that they found uh, more than $500,000 in narcotics, a functioning chemical drug lab that they allege was used to produce ecstasy. They found more than $100,000 in cash. Um, you know, criminal charges from decades, uh, from the decade prior uh, resulting from a raid on his home also uh, uncovered uh, semi-automatic weapons, again, cash, hundreds of thousand dollars in checks that were allegedly written out to, Tam, uh, to Mr. Tam, from uh, these uh, extortion victims, or so the police claimed. So th- there's a long criminal history, and every time one of these charges came up, uh, the, the process and the way that it worked essentially prevented uh, the government from deporting Tam as those criminal proceedings were undertaken. How, how did that happen? Good lawyers? What? How, how did he not get deported? Why was he not considering this, uh, yeah, what you just so mentioned? I mean, there's, he certainly has good lawyers. He certainly has been able to take uh, full advantage of the of the law in terms of the immigration side, but then on the, on the criminal side, too. So uh, he's been acquitted of charges uh, as a result of certain evidence being ruled inadmissible uh, in the court. He's uh, also had a number of weapons and drug charges stayed because of delays in term in, in the prosecution. So how does this ha- how does this happen though? I mean, how does this happen over and over again, Brian? I mean, if they want this guy, they got to make it stick. I mean, every prosecutor knows the, you know what's going to happen in court. So why yeah. does this guy keep slipping away? So it's, it is int- one of the interesting things in this is this idea that. While somebody's being prosecuted, they can't be removed from the country. And and lawyers that I've spoken to say that in general that's there because it would they say it would be irresponsible to deport someone who's facing criminal charges. We want people, if 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 the police believe they're involved uh, in criminal activity activity, we want them to face charges here. Uh, so that's why the provisions are in place. But there are there is wiggle room, so to speak, right? There there's the the policies that are in place do allow prosecutors and they do allow uh, immigration officials to negotiate deals where they can say, well, we're going to drop these charges or stay these charges, which (laughs) opens up a person for deportation, right? Right. Uh, Evidently, that's not occurred in this particular case. And then in the meantime, uh, Mr. Tam, with the help of his lawyers, has used every possible avenue available to him to try and remain in the country through that immigration stream as well. So what's he doing now? Uh, he can't be happy of all this interest that's now being uh, shone on him. Uh, so the, the, the most recent update we have comes from his lawyer uh, and uh, simply stating that uh, he denies all of the allegations with respect to organized crime. Uh, his lawyer did meet with him to request uh, uh, to discuss a request for an interview. We, we did ask for an interview with Mr. Tam, and that was denied. Um, but uh, recent court filings in BC, as well as land uh, title records, show that he, we believe, he is still living in BC in Richmond in a condo that he owns, and he, he owns numerous other properties in BC as well. Uh, do you think this uh, article that you've uh, you, you and Sam Cooper have done now is this going to draw more attention to him? Uh, is he on police's radar right now? Is he being investigated right now? 
I, I can't say. Uh, we have reached out to the RCMP, the RCMP, as well as a number of uh, levels of government, federally and provincially, have all stated that they can't comment on, on issues like this, uh, specific cases due to either privacy concerns or uh, uh, potential or ongoing investigations. So we really don't have an indication as to that. We do know that for the vast majority of the time that uh, Tam has been in Canada, he has been under the watch and under the eye of the RCMP and under Canadian law and other law enforcement agencies, including immigration officials. Um, you know, but I think what, what this story raises perhaps is that in undertaking this public inquiry into money laundering in BC and how uh, organized crime has taken hold, maybe these are questions that the government might want to look at in terms of do they have adequate tools uh, to deal with individuals that are alleged to be involved in organized crime and money laundering, etc. How difficult has it been to dig this stuff up? Yeah, it's 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 uh, in this particular case or in any of these cases, it's always a challenge to put these pieces of work together. You want to make sure that you're uh, doing a fair job and a reasonable and being reasonable to all sides involved. You also want to make sure that uh, when we're looking at it all, we're looking at everything, right? So in this particular case, we're looking at a federal court file uh, that's multiple thousands of pages long, and and interestingly. All of these documents were were disclosed in the federal court case in an effort to keep Tam in the country. So they were appealing a a negative immigration decision. So Tam applied for permanent residency to stay in Canada, as many immigrants do, uh, and that was denied. Uh, And as a result of that denial, uh, uh, lawyers working on Tam's behalf filed an application of appeal uh, with the federal court. And so it's been through that process that we've been able to explore these documents and this, you know, very lengthy and detailed history into the allegations of uh, crime in the past and his immigration history. Uh, you said way back when he was smuggled out of China. How did he make his money in China? Yeah, so uh, before coming to China, he operated, uh, according to his his uh, claims when he came here, he operated a garment factory uh, in, in Guangdong, China, and uh, he had several other businesses as well. Um, so that, that's one of the interesting things. Is in the handwritten notes from the day that he arrived in Vancouver, we can see from, from 1988, immigration officers saying that uh, he had $1,200 cash on him and reported having transferred more than $570,000 to his then-wife, uh, Hui Lin Yip, who had arrived several months earlier and made a refugee claim. So even before coming to Canada, uh, Mr. Tam was quite wealthy, uh, like I say, having sent more than half a million dollars to his wife that had already been in B.C. for a number of months. Does China want him back for charges? Uh, not, as far as I'm aware, no. Uh, there, there's no indication of this whatsoever. So he, uh, was he fleeing China? or According to him, yes. So he, he left uh, he left China because of uh, what he claims were fears that he would face uh, quote unquote severe punishment for his political beliefs and for his wealth. But we have no claimed, proof of that. Well, other than his word, in the sense that yeah. what he claimed in his refugee application was that he faced this risk of severe punishment because he was a member of the bourgeois class. Uh, and that that ultimately, though, was denied. So, like I say, he filed this refugee claim. Uh, but in 1996, uh, a member of the Immigration and Refugee Board denied his and his wife's claim, uh, essentially saying that the evidence they put forward was uh, untrustworthy. 
the more you dig into this and 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 see what a tangled web that it is, th- this could just keep on going, could it not? Your your investigative reporting could just keep digging on this, could it not? Is mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many tentacles. The yeah, it's it's an incre- the story runs very deep, as you say. It goes on and on and on, and there. I think it's it's what's extraordinary in this particular case is just the 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 amount of information that we have on somebody that for decades has been alleged to have been a member of an organized crime group and has been uh, you know under that eye of law enforcement uh, despite the fact that he's never been convicted uh, of any charges in connection to the organized crime uh, you know the the files that we do have and the reports that have been amassed over the years on him. Uh, you know, paint a particular picture of how law enforcement see him. So, you know, we're certainly looking at these files with a lot of scrutiny and and, and exposing this uh, sort of information is important as BC moves towards this public inquiry towards looking into money laundering in the province. Have, have Tam's lawyers been a whole, have gotten a hold of you and told you to back off at all? Uh, only in the initial response. So when we get, we did reach out, like I say, with the the, mm-hmm. the uh, attempt to try and uh, set up an interview with Mr. Tam. That that, uh, as I say, never happened. Um, but uh, in the course of that communication, uh, what we were told was that uh, you know, base, essentially cautioning us against uh, you know the the claims or allegations that have been made with regard to uh, his involvement in organized crime. You know, in, in an affidavit to the federal court, Tam clearly stated that, uh, quote, I am not now, nor have I ever been a member of a gang or an organized crime doesn't uh, organization. Th- doesn't this stuff, uh, as you unravel this stuff, it must be fascinating, but it also must be just uh, uh, overwhelming on, on how deep and big this is. Are you fearful mm-hmm. at all of doing this sort of investigative reporting with your team? No, I, I mean, I think for us, what's really important is is just getting the story out there and yeah. making sure that that the facts are there and making sure that um, when we're looking at this, like I say, that we're doing that due diligence. Uh, and and I think that we've certainly done that uh, in the, in this, this particular case. Um, and, and you know, like you say, it's an incredibly deep and rich story in the sense that. Uh, there's just so much information that we we can look at and and that we can draw upon, and so, you know, whether it's uh, uh, these detail, very detailed reports of of uh, uh, raids uh, that were conducted by the RCMP and and what they were what was found in in these properties and and the criminal charges that were uh, laid that were either acquitted or stayed. There's just this it's a 30 year history, right, of a of an mm. individual that's uh, been in Canada, that's gone through the criminal justice and immigration system, and and how he's managed to stay here for that time. So it's, it's very fascinating. Brian Hill has been with us. He and Sam Cooper. Uh, the column is How Canada's Legal System Helped an Alleged Chinese Gangster Avoid Deportation for uh, Decades. This, this ongoing investigative reporting uh, that they're doing uh, in British Columbia. Brian, great job as always. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's Brian Hill, online writer and researcher, investigative reporter for Global News. Again, incredible stuff uh, that, that uh, he and Sam and the rest have done uh, out on the West Coast on, on bringing this stuff to, uh, to people's attention. It's phenomenal. Uh, we'll keep following it. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, this is uh, uh, this is going to be exciting. Uh, joining us now, Michelle Rempel, Conservative Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. This in all in regard to uh, Andrew Scheer, uh, leader of the Conservatives, Federal Conservatives, of course, uh, releasing policy on immigration in a recent recent speech. And Michelle Rempel is with us now. Oh, I just goofed up. Hang on a sec. Michelle, are you there? I'm there. Hello. Michelle, are you on your honeymoon? Well, I'm working. So uh, that's what uh, happens when you're a member of Parliament. You get married and you get to work. Well, <laughs> so I have, I have a good. new I have a new respect for politicians. That's amazing. And I appreciate you very much uh, to giving us a little bit of time uh, out of your uh, schedule. There. Thank I really my husband. Don't thank me. That's so exactly. You well, you know what? <laughs> Buy him a drink for me, please. Um, anyway, uh, before we get into talking about what Andrew Shear's uh, policy is on immigration, I, I can't uh, I can't let you go without asking you about what is developed in the SNC Lavalin case today. A Quebec judge ruling that in fact it will go to trial. Does this vindicate Jody Wilson Raybould? Well, I think it speaks to the fact that Canadians owe her a debt of gratitude for ensuring that the. Uh, judiciary was able to make an independent decision in this case. And that's really what was at the heart of the entire scandal was the uh, alleged uh, interference of the prime minister in the independence of the judiciary. So, you know, I think the fact that this case is going to trial, uh, despite the fact that SNC-Lavalin spent so much time and put so much pressure at such senior levels of government for the government to interfere or allegedly interfere in the independence of the judiciary in this matter does vindicate her. Um, but it also speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, it's really important for Canadians to be aware of when situations like this happen, uh, because I don't think anyone of any political stripe would want to see the independence of our judiciary eroded. Many thought once uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was uh, demoted out of the attorney general's chair and a a new attorney general brought in that, of course, David Lamenti would just do what Jody Wilson-Raybould wouldn't. Are you surprised they didn't take that route or is it is it political fire no matter what you do here? Well, you know, I had the uh, misfortune of watching some of Lamenti's press conference on this this morning and it was just it was such a disaster. Um, But uh, I, I, I think that. You know, the government got, the Liberal government got rightly so panned and so much uh, scrutiny and took so much heat on their mishandling of the situation that I, you know, I I just think that um, I'm very glad that the judiciary was able to to be independent in in this situation. Um, I, regardless of that, I, I just think that this whole debacle the fact that, you know, Wilson Raybould basically lost her job for doing her job, just, um, I, I think a lot of Canadians are now going to watch the uh, the trial with great interest uh, because the, the charges are really serious, right? And, you know, I guess the other thing is, is that I think Canadians are a lot more aware at the end of the day of the severity of um, the consequences of potentially in, uh, political interference um, in the judiciary. You want you have to wonder how Jody Wilson-Raybould feels today thinking, you know, gee whiz, if I was still the Attorney General, this is exactly what I said in the in the end anyway, so uh, the only unfortunate thing that's happened is that she's lost her job in all of this. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons and, and observations to take out of this whole debacle, um, but certainly just for me, uh, you know, as an aside, 
watching the Canadian media, um, the Liberal Party, uh, just basically, and the Liberal Caucus smear the reputation of this woman uh, for speaking truth to power is something that all Canadians should be really concerned about. That that shouldn't happen. Um, and, you know, kudos to her. Um, you know, she's not part of my political party, but you have to give appreciation and credit to somebody who speaks truth to power and, and stands up for principle, and she certainly did that in this case. Uh, Michelle, are, are we at a turning point in Canadian politics uh, with what has happened with Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, and I know not not in your party or affiliation or anything of that point, but, you know, Jane Philpott said an interesting point the other day when she was giving her press conference. She said, you know, a lot of, a lot of Canadians are looking at all three main political parties and thinking, I'm not being represented by any one of those, is this a turning point as we see political parties, whether it's yours or, or the other two main political parties, look inward and say, are we really doing what they want us to do? Are we really listening to them? Is this resonating with the whole independence movement that, that we're seeing with Phil Pod and Wilson Raybould at this point? Look, I'm still a believer that partisanship is a net positive in Canada from the perspective of a political party is able to put together uh, national policy, right? So a political party is going to say, here's our here's our vision for how the country is going to operate, here's the rule of government, this is what we're going to do. And in a regionally diverse country like Canada, where we have regionalized economy, regional issues, I think that's important. I think what's happened, it, it's slightly different to put the blame just entirely on partisanship or political parties. It's really the role of parliament um, and also the role of media. Um, I think, uh, you know, I've been, this is my eighth year in parliament. It's gone really quickly. I have watched, you know, news media go from reporting to a lot more commentary and opinion. Uh, you know, we've got this $600 million media bailout now. I think there's more of a propensity and uh, to, to report one political viewpoint um, in that opinion, and I would say it's on the left. Uh, I think that there's a lot less ability to question dogma without being jumped all over. Like, you know, we're about to talk about immigration. You know, I, I think it's fair to question who comes into the country and under what circumstances in a fair, orderly, compassionate way without being called a racist. Um, and and I so, so I would spin it and I would say, look, a lot of the... Um, the, the, the erosion of our democratic institutions have happened rapidly in the last four years as a result of a lot of uh, institutions, media institutions, the Liberal Party of Canada, basically saying if you if you're not if if you don't espouse our beliefs, then you, you can't get anything done and you're wrong. So I remember my first term in Parliament, as much as Stephen Harper took, uh, you know, a lot of heat in the in the mainstream media for being, you know. Uh, rigid with his caucus. We had so many votes. I voted against the government. Uh, we, you know, we had a lot of free votes in our party. Uh, I had a very good working relationship with. I was a, uh, you know, with 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 my my critic uh, Megan Leslie, who was from the NDP. She was mm-hmm. such a strong legislator. We were able to get things done. I I feel like Parliament is much less effective. Justice Committee being shut down with the SNC Lavalin scandal. So to me, this is really about Canadians holding. Um, somebody like Justin Trudeau to account to say, look, the democratic institutions are there to make things work. Uh, we don't accept how you're doing, uh, you're undertaking that. So she, there's a bit of truth to what uh, Jane is saying. Um, you know, I, I was very interested in what she had to say, but I don't think that we can paint all political parties with the same brush with when a lot of the disenchantment that Canadians are feeling 
uh, have arisen under, out of the issues that you and I have just spent the last few minutes talking about. All right, Michelle Rempel is with us, Conservative Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. Let's talk about that. Uh, Andrew Shear, your leader, giving a, a speech this week on immigration. What stood out for me in that speech was, and what I found interesting, he, he talked about uh, recent polls that had come out and, and, and didn't shed a very positive light on Canadians and how they feel about immigration and how it appeared that their, their attitudes were closing as opposed to opening up. And, you know, and I've said this, uh, I've said this uh, uh, for, for many weeks, for many months, that, uh, you know, I don't think Canadians necessarily really feel this way as much as they're not sure the Prime Minister has a handle on what's going on. So is this about Canadians changing how they feel about immigrants, considering we are a country of immigrants? Or is it that the Prime Minister is, is making us feel like he's got a laissez-faire attitude on all of this and, and there is no real regulation, there is no policing of this? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, I support immigration. My party su- strongly supports immigration. But it has to be done in a rules-based manner that um, supports the integration of new Canadians into our economic and social fabric. And to me, that's defined by self-sufficiency. So, you know, becoming gainfully employed or creating a business, um, acquisition of one of our official languages, and respect and understanding for the rule of law. It's difficult for that to happen when we're not adequately planning for how people enter the country or who enters into the country under what circumstances. And what Justin Trudeau has allowed to happen in the last several years with the issue at Roxham Road, the, this is where, you know, we've seen close to 45,000 people illegally enter the country from the safety of the United States and then claim asylum. People rightly see that as a, an abuse of our asylum system. People, if you're in the United States of America, I don't care who's in the Oval Office, you are not fleeing persecution. I mean, the United States yeah. is one of the most, you know, responsible democracies in the world. Um, so, so to me, you know, to answer your question, I think the broader perception is that people now see what's happening there and that there's now this perception, especially in new Canadian communities, that people are jumping the queue, they're abusing the asylum system and the backlogs that we see in all of the other streams of entry where people trying to legally enter the country um, have been completely mismanaged. So um, to me, this is really... You know, as much as Justin Trudeau has been trying to flip the narrative on the Conservative Party and Stephen Harper, as he always does, I really think he needs to look in the mirror and say, look, he, he has enabled the abuse of our asylum system. He has, instead of addressing that failure, he has uh, cheapened the term racism and un-Canadian uh, by failing, saying that failing to address public policy on how immigration happens equates with those very serious and real terms. And I think this is where people are, are frustrated. So to me, I would be more interested in seeing data that shows how many people actually support Justin Trudeau's immigration program versus a rules-based immigration system. And I, I think that you would see a stark contrast. And I don't actually think public per- opinion of immigration has fallen as much as public Im- uh, perception of immigration under a liberal government has fallen. Uh, are, are you concerned, especially with what's been happening in the prime minister's office recently and the challenges they've been facing and, 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 and what they've been dealing with in the last little while, that they will try to paint a picture of your leader and your party as being anti-immigration um, and comparing you, frankly, to what's been going on in the U.S.? How do you combat that? And, and why does it have to be extreme this or extreme that? You know, first of all, they are already doing that, and they're doing it 
out of craft politics because they're desperate. And, you know, Canadians, you Canadians deserve better. Uh, and I don't think they will be able to do that um, because we've been so consistent in our message, not just in previous governments where we've, you know, welcomed some of the highest levels of new Canadians to this country under that context of immigration integration. We've also been consistent in our message in this parliament in opposition, right? And in a lot of ways, you know, our party has been responsible for some of the big immigration wins in this country, the Yazidi Genocide Resettlement Initiative, um, holding the government to account uh, on the Roxham Road issue, and just being consistent in our message, which is we support immigration, but you need to come in the, the front door and not the back door. And if you are coming to Canada illegally from the U.S. through the asylum system, that is an abuse of the asylum system, and that needs to change. So I think a lot of the policies that we have proposed, I mean, I've been out since last August, our policy platform was one of the first things that the uh, Liberal government, our immigration platform was one of the first pieces of policies that we put forward. Um, that is very clear. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of Canadians see that. I, I'm not concerned. I'm just, I'm very deeply disappointed and disenchanted with the Liberal government's, uh, you know, rhetoric on this issue. I think it's very dangerous. And it, um, it, 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 Justin Trudeau is cashing in on uh, populist rhetoric, uh, whereas we're, as a party, trying to say, let's take this back to process and, and make sure that the process is rules-based, orderly, and compassionate. I think Canadians are en masse rejecting the, the, the liberal narrative on this, and I think that that bodes well for our immigration system in Canada. All right, uh, one more question left, and we'll let you get back to, uh, to what you were doing there. Biggest challenge Andrew Scheer faces heading into the next election. W- what do you want Canadians to know about him that they may not know? Many have said, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's not the, the same sort of person or charismatic individual that, that, that a Justin Trudeau is, uh, that, that, that people really don't know a lot about him, therefore or, uh, allowing others to to paint a narrative of him. What's what's the biggest challenge moving forward with Andrew Scheer as your leader? You know, to me, I believe that if you enter public service, if you're an elected official, your job is the community is paying your salary to lift the community up. You are below the community lifting it up and fighting for it, not the other way around. You're not above the community and the community is there uh, to, to, to assist in your self-aggrandizement. And I think that's what a lot of Canadians are putting their finger on with regard to Justin Trudeau, that, you know, he's there for himself. He's not there for the community. And I could, you know, give you the litany of examples, you know, Aga Khan Island, SSC Lavalin, blah, 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 Vogue Magazine, Socks, whatever. Andrew's here. <laughs> I mean, I've known Andrew for... Um, many years, 15 years now, I've kind of grown up with, with Andrew and his wife, Jill. They are humble, beautiful people that, yeah, Andrew Shear's not going to be, uh, if, you know, if he was on the phone right now, he would laugh, but look, Andrew Shear's not managing to a photo shoot on Vogue magazine. Yeah. Like, Andrew's in public service to lift the community up. Um, what I respect about him as a senior member of his team is that he is a consensus builder. He, you know, he seeks my opinion. Uh, he, uh, he's asking everybody in caucus, our candidates, about public policy, how it's affecting the community. Um, and he, you know what? I don't, I don't really... I think if you're in politics to be a celebrity, um, like, 
go find another business, go go talk mm. to Kardashian. A quiet government that manages tax dollars prudently and effectively keeps our country safe, um, you know, and ensures that you know the equality of opportunity. That's really to me success, and and Andrew embodies that. And I think, you know, talking to a lot of Canadians now. Um, I think they understand that difference, even though they might not verbalize it that way. So I think even though people are saying, you know, Andrew's not, you know, as, as, as he's, he's, he's not as sizzly as Justin Trudeau is, hmm. he's a good manager. He's a solid human being with a strong moral focus that cares about people. And I, I think that we're going to see that become a strength over the next few months as the campaign really ramps up. Michelle Rampal has been with us, Conservative Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. And don't say these people don't work hard when they're talking to you, even when they're uh, on their honeymoon. Congratulations, <laughs> Michelle. Take care. Have a great day. All right. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, Michelle Rampal has been with us, uh, Conservative Shadow Minister for Immigration, uh, Refugees, and Citizenship. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.